I'm Dr. Persia, as in the Empire. I'm a cancer scientist turned masculinity researcher, and I run an educational company called Positive Masculinity Academy, and a male-focused nonprofit organization called Feminists for Men. This podcast covers all the angles why globally, 80% of all suicide deaths are men. We'll touch on areas where significant changes need to be made immediately to stop the silent crisis. This podcast is for all the good men who want to shine a light on healthy and positive masculinity by eradicating toxicity, courtesy of patriarchy. And for all the good women who wonder why men do what they do. For a more in-depth understanding of what this podcast is about and why in the hell a woman is talking about men's issues, do check out our episode one. Hi, friends. Thank you for checking out the Secure Masculinity Podcast's first episode. There are a series of questions about me that I get asked a lot, and I figured it'd be a good idea to address them here. I'll also explain what this podcast is about and why it was created. If you're patient enough and stick around at the end, I'll answer the most burning question I get, which is why a woman is talking about men's issues. Let's get started. My name is F. Persia Jamshidi. Everyone calls me Dr. Persia, as in the Persian Empire. I'll tell you about my cancer career first, and then how I switched the two masculinity research and how I've connected the two and used my knowledge as a cancer scientist in my new line of work. Right after high school, I attended a seven-year medical school, but it was definitely not for me. So instead, I went to college at UMKC in Kansas City, Missouri, which was an incredible place, and I loved it. I finished it in only two years, and then got a master's degree in genetics from the University of North Carolina, and then a PhD from Rutgers University in molecular biology. Most of my PhD work was done at the Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City, where I got educated as a student and later worked as a cancer scientist. My primary focus was on targeted therapies in a less common but more deadly form of breast cancer that's triple negative but androgen receptor positive. I've always found working on cancer to be an extremely fascinating work, and so much good has happened in the field. It's a very difficult work, Because for all the obvious moral reasons, scientists can't actually study and experiment on cancer where it exists, which is the human body. So we have to try to duplicate the situation either in an animal or in a petri dish, which is absolutely not the same thing and does not give exact comparable responses as if it was inside a human body. So There are millions of trials and errors. And even if the experiment was inside a human body, it varies from person to person due to their genetic, makeup, and environmental factors. 
It's a very intricate and challenging work with millions of ever-changing variables. I'm telling you this so you can understand how extremely complicated cancer research is. I would constantly hear complaints from New York City cab drivers to someone at a party to a random person in the street that you scientists are taking so much money and you have the cure, but you're holding back on us to get more money. If you're listening to this and that sounds preposterous to you, let me tell you, there are a very good chunk of people who believe in that. Well, here's the explanation. Unfortunately, the word cure is a marketing ploy. Whether it was created and spread with intentional deception or not, it gives the wrong idea to the public. I would ask those people who complained, what is your idea of cure for cancer? Is it a single pill that you would take and cancer would be gone? Is it a series of pills? Is it a series of injections? They had never thought about it. So they would say, I don't know, just give me the cure. The best that can ever happen for cancer is extremely targeted therapies that work fast and with minimal side effects. And that is not a cure, that's a treatment. And unfortunately, there will never be a cure the way you have in mind. Our bodies generate cancer cells every month. And if our immune system is strong, it gets rid of it. So even the idea of being cancer-free is, again, regrettably misleading. Therefore, it's so incredibly important to keep our immune system very strong and minimize chronic inflammation as much as possible. Targeted therapies mean we can create drugs that are so specialized it has the ability to identify the cell surface receptors on cancer cells and only bind to them and destroy them and not the healthy cells like traditional chemotherapy drugs with widespread devastating side effects. There's also immunotherapy, which I have high hopes for. And if you're interested in learning more about it, follow Dr. Steven Rosenberg's incredible work. I'll have two links for him in the show notes for those of you who are interested. And about the money, let me tell you, nobody goes into academia for money. As a PhD student working 18 hours a day, six days a week for seven years, coming home around 3 a.m. every night, it wasn't and couldn't ever be about money. Let me tell you a story. One night at the hospital cafeteria, the cafeteria lady was in her special mood that night and would ladle the god-awful cafeteria food and slam it smacked up in the middle of our paper plates the way it would splatter everywhere. Even though I was hungry and tired and needed to go back to work, that act grossed me out so much that it made me lose my appetite and I tossed the whole plate in trash. My friend's interpretation of the incident was, well, she gets paid minimum wage, what do you expect? That prompted us to be curious about how much per hour we get paid and started calculating right at the dinner table. And we ended up figuring out for the first time that we were getting paid 50 cents an hour. 
Yes, 50 cents an hour. Think about that. That was as a grad student. But it doesn't get a whole lot better after that in academia. All the millions of dollars that you good folks donate to the cancer foundations is spent at their discretion. Cancer foundations have nothing to do with scientists and cancer institutes. Those are private foundations. They can donate whatever you give them to us, whether a little bit of it or a lot of it. There are no regulations on how much of the money they receive they can donate. Some of the bigger foundations, with their despicable pink ribbon that just makes a mockery out of cancer, pay the CEO of the nonprofit upwards of a half a million dollars a year. I have a nonprofit. I don't understand how can you pay that much salary at a nonprofit organization to anyone. Personally, I don't like it, and I don't trust those foundations. And my opinion is that the pink ribbon is a big scam. If you wanted to donate money to cancer research, I suggest that you donate it directly to a research institute of your choice. To be honest, scientists are ego-driven, not money-driven. We love to win a Nobel Prize. And trust me, if there was a, quote, cure, unquote, it would be out and we would be screaming from the rooftops so we can get the recognition and the Nobel Prize. But as I said, the problem is the misleading concept of cure, challenges of ethical research, and the unregulated foundations, not the hardworking scientists. Moving on, after a decade of working in the field, I had witnessed so much devastation and believed strongly in cancer prevention. There is so much we can do to minimize our risk of cancer so fewer people get to the point of needing drugs and surgery. My cancer patients wanted to make drastic lifestyle changes immediately and in a short period of time and do it all at once. Unfortunately, that's not when you do that. Lifestyle changes need to be made incrementally throughout life before one is sick and diagnosed. So I switched and became a cancer prevention specialist. The issue with that, as I found out, was that people only focus on clean nutrition and exercise and literally ignore everything else. Those are two very important factors, but those are two out of 100. How about the other 98 factors? Processed food that wreaks havoc in our bodies eventually leaves the body. And if you replenish your body with high-quality natural nutrition, the effect of that bad food can be minimized. But there are other stress factors that can be far more devastating, and we simply don't think about them the way we should. The things for cancer prevention that we need to be very concerned about is all the stress elements, physical and otherwise, that perpetuate chronic inflammation and weaken our immune system. Currently, the biggest stressors in our lives are mental and emotional stressors. You can eat all the clean food and be healthy and active, but if you have chronic anxiety, if you have PTSD, if you have constant pressure and stress, then the effect of those are far more devastating because they are constantly affecting you 24-7 and never leave your body like a fast food would. 
there are modalities such as NLP and meditation, and they're pretty good, but they all help a little. And don't stop it on the spot. I spent two years getting to the root of anxiety and understanding how it starts and how it works. I developed a series of proprietary techniques and trademarked them as Jamshidi Method. If you Google that, the result shows the Jamshidi biopsy needle that my uncle invented, and it's used at hospitals all over the world. But if you want to find out about mine, you can go to jamshidimethod.com, and I'll leave the link for everything in the show notes. Basically, the main formula is a six-step formula that you apply right when a stressful thought appears, and you can stop it right on the spot so you don't get to fight, flight, or freeze stage. I use that and other techniques with my cancer prevention clients with lots of success and changed their lives. Coming from personal experience, living an anxiety-free life is unlike any experience you've ever had before. Your day starts, continues, and ends with a completely different tone. It feels like you can breathe better, like you just discovered that your lung had an extra lobe that you've never used before. Traditionally, men don't call it anxiety. They mostly call it nerves or stress or PTSD, but they pretty much mean the same thing. The way that an anxiety-free life opens up possibilities for you, living a healthier life and changing your habits is not as much of a struggle or an extra chore anymore. A little later, I'll tell you how these methods that I created for my cancer prevention clients tie into my work as a masculinity researcher. In 2016, out of personal curiosity and a bit of frustration at a failed relationship where I felt the both of us were speaking different languages and could never understand each other, I started reading about men's behavior. I kept digging and I came across a statistic that showed that 80% of all suicide deaths are men in most countries. I thought that must be a mistake. There's no way. If that was the case, it'd be a front page news everywhere. Sadly, after I checked and checked and rechecked, that's the true statistics. And sadly, it is the case that no one is really talking about it. My mind was blown. Why are men killing themselves in such a high rate? Just in the United States, it's a whopping 130 men a day on average. And more importantly, why no one is talking about it? As a scientist, my first instinct was to design a small-scale research project that I could work on at night and during the weekends. I was told, you're wasting your time. Men don't talk. Good thing I'm a hard-headed, stubborn Taurus. Otherwise, I would have listened to them. To this day, which we're in April 2022 right now, I've worked with over 7,000 male research participants globally, from Saudi Arabia to Alaska, and everywhere in between. Men talk. Men are waiting to talk. There's just no safe space for them to do so. The reason I had the pleasure to work with so many great men 
is that within the first few months of me looking for them and trying to convince them to talk to me, they started finding me. Many times I'd get an email from, let's say, Cyprus or France or Argentina or Egypt, and a guy would say, I've heard you work with my buddy's friend's cousin, and I don't know what happened, but he gave us your email and said to talk to the scientist lady. It expanded so much that it was not a side project anymore. I had to choose, and I chose men over cancer. Not a bad choice, huh? (laughs) The biggest reason was that there are plenty of amazing scientists working on cancer, but I couldn't find many people who were doing exactly what I was doing in masculinity research and were as successful as I was. There are a lot of good works being done in masculinity out there, but it's either limited to publications and articles and not as much in-person work, or it's encouraging men to be more involved in women's causes, which is extremely admirable and necessary, but it's not really focusing on men. And then, there are the various men's rights activist groups that blame everything on women and have created these extremely violent, misogynistic, angry, victim mindset groups that are extremely toxic and won't help any man. What I do is to work with men, listen to them, understand their intricacies, and fashion a language that is specific to them and create an environment that is caring and inviting and safe. Ask any man why you don't talk about your pain, and he'll tell you because nobody cares. I've worked for years, and I understand insecure masculinity, and I understand how paramount it is that we talk to men the way that we allowed them to be vulnerable with us and not be worried that their masculinity is going to be under attack in any way, shape, or form. That's something that everyone in society needs to learn and start implementing. My work with men brings women to the table with respect because men don't live in a vacuum. We all live in society together. And if we want to take care of one group, we need to have other groups available and willing to make a real change. So these angry women-hating groups are nothing but hate groups. And no man can get anything positive out of it. So my next move was to create Positive Masculinity Academy, which is a for-profit educational company, exactly two months before the pandemic, which created an interesting journey. About a year later, I created a male-focused nonprofit organization, which I'll talk about it later. Positive Masculinity Academy helps society understand the challenges and pain that men go through, that affect them and everyone else. But no one is interested in doing anything about it. I've been interested in collaborating with other organizations and companies, but many of them have zero interest in a work that is not exactly focused on women or minorities or children or LGBT. So unfortunately, when my men say no one cares, They're not lying. So Positive Masculinity Academy's mission is to make people care 
by teaching them the correct education. I've turned my hundreds of thousands of pieces of data about masculinity that I firmly believe can tremendously help men and society dramatically reduce suicide into a book called The Masculinity Handbook. Unfortunately, when the pandemic started, I stopped writing and I haven't picked it back up yet. But I'm planning to start writing again in the second half of 2022 and finish it and publish it as soon as possible. In the meantime, I'll leave a link in the show notes. So if you're interested, you can read the book description. And there is also a partial list of table of contents. Other educational modalities that Positive Masculinity Academy is working on is creating an online course called Secure Masculinity that will come out after the book in 2023. The nonprofit that I started last year in 2021 works cohesively on the same core mission. My research has shown that if we offer tailored services in seven specific areas to men, we can tremendously reduce the pressure and stress, and that can gravely reduce the suicide rate. My nonprofit is called Feminists for Men for a very strong reason. I'm a feminist who believes in gender equality. As a feminist, I believe that all genders and non-binary folks deserve the same rights and the same respect. And I don't see feminism as something that is just for women. If men feel that we don't care and we don't provide adequate services for them and they are pushed to a limit that take their lives in such an alarming rate, then somewhere we are lacking in gender equality more than we thought. To be honest, basically, we offer three consistent services to men at the moment. So when a man has a problem, service number one, we tell him to man up and get over it. The second service is incarceration. And the third service is planning and attending his funeral. That's the ugly truth. As a feminist, I believe we need to do a lot more than that. Our male-focused nonprofit, Feminists for Men, offers counseling in five specific areas tailored to men, as well as legal help in two specific areas, all free of charge for everyone. If you would like to read more about it, please go to feministsformen.org. And again, I'll leave the link in the show notes. Our nonprofit also encourages men to tell their stories. We've actually created a webcam that you can directly record on our website and upload it so you don't even need to use your own phone. And then we will upload those on YouTube and Instagram. The idea is to destigmatize men showing emotions and vulnerability and talking about their pain. And it also humanizes men's image that has been gravely dehumanized by traditional masculinity. If people think you don't have any problems, then why should people care and come and help? Gentlemen, it is your job to come out and talk about your challenges and talk about your pain and not feel like that it would make you any less of a man if you do so. Well, here we go back to insecure masculinity. I highly recommend that you check it out 
and share your story as much or as little as you wish. Now, this is how I've connected my cancer research with my masculinity research. The proprietary formulas that I mentioned that I've created to help minimize the stress physically on the body also help to improve mental health and mental well-being, which ultimately can drastically reduce the suicide rate. This podcast is part of raising awareness about challenges that men go through. It's about sacrifices and pain that men deal with every day, and also about lack of resources for men. And most importantly, it is about eradicating insecure masculinity. I wish every man in the world could listen to this podcast. It's also extremely helpful for women who also don't live in a vacuum and live in society where men are around. And it will blow your mind, ladies, how wrong our thinking about men in many cases is and how detrimental it is for us and for them and for our relationship with them, be it family members, colleagues, or romantic partners, or even some guy in the street. There is so much that I have learned and I can talk about that you can implement with your sons and your husbands that will revolutionize your relationship for the better. As promised, let's talk about the juicy question. A small group of people ask me, why a woman is talking about men's issues? Or why a woman is a masculinity researcher? Let me ask you a question. Did you ever ask a man why he became a gynecologist? Yes, have you? I mean, I'll respond to that question, but I just couldn't resist the opportunity to be a dick about it first. Because I know you've never questioned a man's authority on that, or even wondered why. So, you're sexist, I'm a dick, it's a match made in heaven. The answer actually is that I'm a scientist, and my gender has nothing to do with my ability to be a good scientist. It didn't when I was a cancer researcher, and it doesn't now as a masculinity researcher. And I've been a damn good scientist in both fields. However, I found that as a scientist who happens to be a woman, men are much more comfortable talking to me than they would be with a man because of the issue of insecure masculinity. It's much harder for a man to be vulnerable with another man, even in a professional setting. Because they can't help at some point, to a certain degree, not have their masculine identities compete with each other. But that issue is irrelevant with me. Couple that with my ability and knowledge to speak with a man in a correct way and provide a safe space for him has made me a very successful researcher. Another question that is actually legit and I get asked a lot is how a woman is going to teach men how to be a man. Now that's a valid question. Men ask that because from a very young age, Everyone comes and tells a little boy and a teenage boy how to be a man. That completely distorts a little boy's identity of his own unique masculinity. And he keeps emulating what he has been taught 
and glorified for him. And that is very damaging. I don't teach men how to be a man. They already are. And we're born to be one. No one needs to teach a man how to be a man. I help men discover their unique masculine identities, feel validated, and live authentically and confidently in showing emotions, willingly care about their mental well-being, communicate clearer about their needs, and don't feel any less of a man if they happen to need help. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. And I invite you to come on this journey with me. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today, my lovely friends. And if you'd be so kind, please write a review and share this episode of the Secure Masculinity Podcast with a friend or two. Just grab the link and text it to them, and they might find it just as valuable as you have, which of course, I hope you have. (laughs) So thanks again for being here, and I will see you right here next time. See you soon.